Please join me in prayer for God to illuminate our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in you will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading is Psalm 72. Listen for God's word to us. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give a deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon is no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and other isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Zeba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations give him service. For he delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayers be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all day long. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of the mountains. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May all nations be blessed in him. May they pronounce him happy. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the earth. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture passage this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Listen again to God's word for us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me again in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our passage from Romans this morning is probably an interesting one coming off of Fourth of July celebrations. As you can imagine, Romans 13 and a similar passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, these were go-to favorites for those who opposed the revolution against British rule. And you can imagine and understand why. Submit to the authorities, pay your taxes. Those things do not sound very revolutionary. But this morning, we've got an opportunity to explore the divinely ordained purpose of government according to this passage, as well as Psalm 72 that Martha read. Now, Paul wrote his letter to the churches in Rome toward the end of his ministry. He was seeking to build up a relationship with these churches in Rome, ideally gain support for missionary activity in, activity in Spain. And this morning's passage came toward the end of that letter as Paul was encouraging the faithful in Rome to present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And some of the well-known exhortations at the end of the letter here uh, are as follows. Uh, In that vein, let your love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it's right after those exhortations, those verses, that Paul then enjoins his listeners, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And this message, I imagine, strikes us as a bit jarring. Because Paul's admonition to the churches in Rome to submit to ruling authorities feels a bit like a recipe for abuse of power, for potentially accepting and acquiescing to oppressive rule. And on his face, it is made all the more jarring by the fact that Paul doubles down by saying that submission should be granted because 
quote, there's no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Now, for centuries in Western Europe, uh, under submission, utter submission to civil authority as divinely ordained was how this passage was routinely interpreted. And along this line, theologians and clergy frequently argued uh, that it was not the place of subjects, but God Almighty on Judgment Day to hold civil authorities accountable. They argued further that bad rulers could be a disciplining punishment for national sins. And furthermore than that, that rebellion against the ruling authorities caused greater injury and harm to people than submission to even a corrupt authority would. But when we look at this passage from Paul, it's also helpful to understand a bit more of the historical situation in which he was prayerfully composing and writing his letter to the churches in Rome. The letter again likely came and was written toward the end of his ministry in the late 50s AD roughly 25 years after Christ's death and resurrection, but before Paul himself was arrested for the final time and ultimately executed by those governing authorities. And two of the people that Paul directly addresses in the letter, uh, Prisca and Aquila, provide an important insight into the times in which Paul was writing this letter. Prisca and Aquila were Jews who had been in Rome, and they'd been expelled from Rome around 49 AD, about almost 10 years before Paul wrote the letter. And they'd been expelled by the Emperor Claudius when he kicked out all the Jews from the city of Rome. Now the reason that's recorded for this expulsion is a bit vague. It was simply that the Jews were causing disturbances. But it's important to remember that many Romans harbored uh, a general antipathy and distrust towards the Jewish people. Their primary concern being that the Jewish people were <clears throat> particularly resentful particularly resistant to Roman rule, and that they would not worship the emperor along those lines. It seemed to the Romans that the Jewish people had conflicted allegiances. allegiances. Many Romans also found Jewish religious practices odd. For instance, they found circumcision uncivilized. They found weekly Sabbath a sign of laziness. And again, in roughly 49 AD, Claudius, the emperor, kicked the Jews out of Rome. <coughs> So we have this as a bit of background when we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, this persecution of the Jews in Rome. Now by the time he was writing it, Claudius, the emperor who had kicked out the Jews, was gone. He'd been assassinated and Nero had come to power. He was the emperor. Nero is, of course, uh, infamous for being corrupt himself, uh, and in particular for burning down parts of Rome so that he could make a large expansion for a private palace blaming that fire on Christians, and then persecuting them sadistically. But Nero's rampant cruelty had not yet been unleashed when Paul was writing his letter to the Romans. And in fact, the first five years of his rule, as he was still a teenager, Rome was largely being run by Nero's handlers, his advisors. And they were running the empire in a manner that was largely free of corruption and intrigue, doing away with a lot of the abuses that the previous emperor Claudius had been undertaking. In a book, uh, Paul's Letter to the Romans, uh, socio-rhetorical commentary, uh, New Testament scholar Ben Witherington notes that Paul could, quote, in good faith exhort his audience to pay their taxes, do their civic duties, live at peace with their neighbors, because there was great and widespread hope, and not only in Rome, that Nero 
would keep the peace and govern wisely, fairly, justly. Nevertheless, while Nero's reign seemed to be going more smoothly at the start, there was the ever-present thought, which Paul knew all too well, of the disdain that Romans felt towards the Jews. The specter of imperial might crashing down upon them haunts Paul's injunction to submit to the authorities. And that imperial might crashing down would not only be on the Jews, but also on Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians alike, because to the outside Roman observer, followers of Christ, appeared similarly, if not indistinguishably, dangerous in their shared refusal to worship the emperor. Not to mention their own strange religious practices, like eating the flesh and blood of their lord. Yet there's also more that we need to focus on rooted in Paul's letter to the Romans in this passage. There's more in there than simply prudence and caution in dealing with the governing authorities. Paul further and firmly asserts in this part of the letter to the Romans that civil order, that governing authority, is a good intended and instituted by God. Paul calls the civil authorities servants of God three times in this passage. And they are servants, quote, for your good. They are servants to execute wrath on the wrongdoer, to be a terror to bad conduct. While we can raise questions about the degree of trust Paul was investing in the authorities in this moment, it's key to see what Paul was stressing as the purpose of government. According to Paul, the core purpose of the authorities was to protect. And while that is a purpose that can and has been violated throughout the ages and across nations, that principle to defend the people so that they are not wantonly subject to violence, abuse, disarray, and destruction that can accompany the chaos of anarchy, of the lack of clear civil authorities, that's the purpose that Paul is stressing as why governments exist and why they are the servants of God. And one can see where Paul gets this sense of the proper role of governing authorities from passages like Psalm 72. In that royal psalm, we get a powerful vision of the purpose of the king's authority. The king exists to serve God, making just judgments, protecting those who are particularly vulnerable to abuse. One of the psalm's most beautiful images for this is of the king's due role is as follows. May he defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the needy, crush the oppressor. For he delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And the king's role also further entails uh, not just protection, uh, but creation, protection of people, but creation of the circumstances and the environment in which people can flourish. The psalm reads, may there be abundance of grain in the land. May it wave on the top of mountains. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. And the imagery uh, for this role of the king in creating those circumstances, it's a really beautiful and amazing one too. The king is supposed to be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. 
In his days, may righteousness flourish and peace abound, the psalm says. Uh, And one could imagine playing on this metaphor of the king, the righteous king, as the water that provides growth for the abundance and prosperity of the land. One could imagine playing on that metaphor a bit and saying that an oppressive authority would be more like a drought, an authority that does not water. And conversely, an authority that allows anarchy would be more like the flood of chaos, too much water. A helpful and complementary uh, prophetic image of the kind of flourishing that we hear about in Psalm 72 comes in Isaiah, chapter 65. And it casts this vision of God's peace uh, and the governing authorities as follows. I will rejoice, the Lord, I the Lord will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime for one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for their offspring shall be blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Thanks be to God. We need to raise the question, though, as to what happens when governing authorities fall short of that prophetic image of flourishing, of the call of what the king is supposed to be in Psalm 72. What happens when governing authorities are not simply a terror to bad conduct, but to good conduct, when they're not fulfilling their God-given ministry and role? It seems crucial, especially in our context, to not simply submit to authorities, but to hold them accountable to the purpose for which God instituted them in the first place. And I think that call to hold those governing authorities accountable feels particularly true, rings particularly true for us as Americans. This past week, we again celebrated the 4th of July, the epitome of resisting governing authorities that have strayed from their purpose. As the Declaration of Independence maintains, governments are instituted to secure the equal rights of everyone to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that when any form of government becomes, become, any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, echoed and pressed upon this vision of government Uh, as well as uh, our shortcomings as a country in living up fully to it, 56 years ago when he was on uh, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during the March on Washington. Dr. King said, when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we refuse to believe uh, that the bank of justice, uh, the bank of this promissory note, is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds and the great vaults of opportunity in this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a promissory note, that will give us 
the demand of riches of freedom and security and justice. Brothers and sisters, it's crucial for us to note and understand and consider uh, that we as a nation have incredible ideals that flow in line with the purposes for which God enjoins and institutes government, that all may flourish. It's crucial that as a nation, uh, to understand that as a nation, we also have not always lived up to those ideals and those aspirations. To paraphrase 1 John, if we as a nation believe we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And yet similarly, if we believe as a nation that we are only of sin, that we are only a nation of sin, we have missed something crucially true about the United States. America, like every human institution this side of Christ's return, uh, we are a nation built on driving aspirations for all and that all may flourish. We often disagree about what that manifestation of, go- of governing authority looks like that best serves that purpose, that best serves as those showers of water on the earth so that peace abounds and peaceful can blossom in cities like the grass of the field. But the conviction and the aspiration that we have as Americans is that everyone has access to fully participate in the creation and enjoyment of prosperity. And now our nation, like all all nations, does stand under the ultimate judgment of Christ for the way that we care for the hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned among us, as Jesus noted in Matthew 25. And our nation, like all nations, will also pass away. It will not endure in the fullness of God's coming kingdom. As Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, our citizenship, our commonwealth are ultimately in heaven, in the resurrection, in the lordship of Christ. But our nation, the United States, is a place in which we participate and practice in self-governance such that we might grow more fully into the life-cultivating purposes for which God instituted governing authorities to ensure that everyone's fields, everyone's gardens are duly watered so that they can grow and bear fruit abundantly. The beauty of America, of our country, comes in its promise and its potential and in the prayers of confession and petition that we live into our ideals. If we think back now to Paul's letter to the Romans, to the charge that the governing authorities are the servants and the ministers of God, we can recognize that the idea that governing authorities are servants and ministers of God is actually quite revolutionary. In that claim, it is the demotion. Paul is demoting the Roman emperor from someone who claims himself to be divine to being a mere minister a mere administrative instrument of the living God. And this claim is extremely submersive, subversive of what the Roman understanding of who the emperor was. Now the full culmination of our vision and hope in flourishing under God is of course something that will come only through Christ, our eternal king, But again, the God-ordained role of governance is to water so that all can flourish. 
And as Americans, may we join together in this call in the service and love of God and our neighbor. In Metro Richmond, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, in the United States of America, of which we all are all a part. To God be the glory forever and ever, brothers and sisters. Amen.